Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Okay, so as we come to hear God's word, as having had it read to us already, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Lord God, we pray that you will be with us this evening. Help us to hear your word clearly. Uh, help us to take confidence in your plans and your purposes. I encourage us to be part of your work for your church, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I will also say that um, I realise yeah, there's something to get home to, and I'm planning to get home for it as well, uh, but a little time for questions or comments, reflections uh, after the sermon, as long as I don't speak for too long. So uh, we'll see, see how we go there. Uh, so you may well know that Tim Keller, well-known author and preacher, died earlier this year. Uh, a big part of his story was that back in 1989, he moved to Manhattan, New York, a uh, big island in New York, to start a church. And when he moved there in the late 80s, uh, New York was a really difficult place. It was a city that was known for crime and violence. Uh, one thing I read was that in 1989 in New York, a typical day had reported to the police nine rapes, five murders, 255 robberies, and 194 assaults. Uh, there were very few, I think there was really no consistent Bible-believing churches on the city of Man, on the island of Manhattan, uh, and certainly lots of empty, boarded-up church buildings. And New Yorkers are famously are very busy, very ambitious, very sceptical, but of course a lot of the population is fairly um, transient as well, and so really difficult place to establish a church. And the Kellers had come from serving in a small rural city of about 20,000 people, and then Tim Keller had been teaching at the, a seminary in the kind of leafy suburbs of Philadelphia. Uh, almost every uh, profile of him describes him as a bookish professor. Uh, there'd been previous attempts to plant a church, a Bible-based Presbyterian church in New York City, and it had failed. So when the Kellers moved to Manhattan, uh, many of their friends were pretty pessimistic about how this was going to go. They didn't look like the right people to go there, and it was a really tough place. Well, I think Paul must have thought fairly similarly as he arrived in Corinth. Uh, so we read last, we saw last week that, I think this is, is that a, oh, there's no light on this one. Oh. <laughs> Did I do that? <laughs> okay, I'll just. Oh, I was trying to see if I had a point of it. Point in, in, in Athens, 
And now he sails across to Corinth. Uh, and as he arrived in Corinth, he must have felt like it was a pretty tough place to go. It was a big city. Uh, it was the number three city in the empire. So there was Rome, and then there was Alexandria in Egypt, and then Corinth. And Corinth had grown a great deal just in the sort of hundred years or so around this period. You can see where it is. It's on the, always a difficult word to say, isthmus, that little land bridge. And what it meant is you could sail uh, goods from Italy out to the west in through the Gulf of Corinth, just drag them over that little bridge and then sail across to Asia Minor in the east. Uh, and so Corinth was this big, it actually had two ports, one on either side, uh, growing quickly, very prosperous, a very impressive city. Uh, we can still see the remains of it today. And uh, so it was built around the, this big hill in the middle, the Acro Corinth. Uh, this, this impressive city spread around it, great markets and lots of temples. Uh, there, we know there was a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. There was a temple to Athena, the goddess, a vast temple to the emperor himself, uh, and then a temple to Aphrodite built up on top of the hill. And the Strabo, the uh, Roman geographer, says that the temple of Aphrodite on, uh, on the Acro Corinth had a thousand temple slaves, uh, prostitutes, uh, men and women who were dedicated to the goddess. So this wealthy, cosmopolitan, proud city, uh, and also a city where there was a great deal of attention to status. It was one of the places where you could kind of climb the social ladder, uh, and lots of people wanted to do that. Uh, and displaying your wisdom and your wealth and your status was very much part of the culture of Corinth. So this is not a quiet rural town that Paul's going to, or even a kind of more philosophical city like Athens where people wanted to discuss ideas. Here he is arriving in boisterous, opulent, boasting, indulgent Corinth. But Paul's not going alone. Uh, the mission that he goes on is God's mission. And even as he looked up at the Acro Corinth and wondered where to begin, God had already arranged things for him. So it turns out that there are already Christians in Corinth. He meets Aquila and Priscilla, uh, who have come from Rome. We actually we have a record of this event when the Emperor Claudius uh, expelled the, the Jews from Rome. It might have even been because of a dispute about Christianity. But for whatever reason, Paul arrives in Corinth and there he finds in the marketplace a Jewish Christian couple who are already there. And it turns out they're tent makers, which is the same trade as Paul. And so he can move in with them, uh, live with them, work with them, and go and speak in the synagogue on the, on, on the Sabbath. I remember lots of years ago when uh, Liz and I first went into full-time ministry and I was appointed as the minister in Cowra uh, in central western New South Wales. Now Cowra was certainly not as lonely or as threatening as uh, arriving in Corinth, but, but God arranged for two families to move to that church within a couple of weeks of 
us starting there in ministry. And they were such an encouragement to us. And it would have been a very different few years there if uh, they hadn't been there. Uh, having partners, and especially unexpected partners, is a great encouragement, isn't it? It's a big difference at work if you're the only Christian or if there's one other Christian. And so the Lord provides partners for Paul. And he goes on the Sabbath to the synagogue and preaches about Jesus. And then his colleagues Silas and Timothy arrive uh, from the north. They've presumably brought uh, money that the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea have contributed. And so then Paul can commit himself full time to preaching. Uh, so he preaches in the synagogue and as in lots of cities, the synagogue reaches the point where it rejects Paul and his message. Now, we actually know a bit about the, or we at least know roughly where the synagogue was in Corinth. Uh, that's a bit of uh, stonework that says the Hebrews on it. And uh, this is a piece of uh, a column that would have been in the synagogue in Corinth. So the, the Jews in the synagogue listen to him for some time, but then turn against him. They abuse him, or perhaps it's they abuse Jesus and the message. Uh, and this has been Paul's pattern in all the towns that he's gone to. He preaches to the Jews first. And if and when they turn against the gospel, he then says he's going to the Gentiles. And so the same here. He sounds Here it sounds a bit like the prophet Ezekiel saying, your blood is now on your heads. I've given you the message. You have rejected it. I'm going to the Gentiles. But it turns out that one of the God-fearing Gentiles, Titus Eustace, actually owns a home right next to the synagogue. So Paul can just move next door and continue to preach and indeed continue to reach the Jews, even though he's left the synagogue, because we're told the next thing that happens is that the synagogue ruler, Crispus, and his whole household become believers. Imagine the impact that would have had on the synagogue that all of a sudden the synagogue ruler has left the synagogue and joined Paul and the Christians. And indeed, many of the Corinthians heard Paul and believed and were baptised. One of the saddest aspects of Australian spiritual life at present is apathy. There are a lot of people around us who just seem to have no strong views about God or Jesus. They just don't care. And it's often when people get upset, when there's a bit of turbulence and friction, when for Christians it means there's a bit of abuse and rejection, that's often the point at which people become Christians as well as they start to take the gospel seriously. And that's what happens here in Corinth. It's after he's rejected from the synagogue that we're told people become Christians. So I think that's some encouragement for us as our society becomes a bit more suspicious of Christianity, a lot more, and critical of Christianity. Uh, that might actually be the time when people start to listen as well. So at one level it sounds as if, as if mission in Corinth is going well. We're told people are becoming Christians. And yet obviously Paul is finding it difficult. Uh, Luke's given us a few snippets of the good outcomes, but there were lots of disappointments. And I think particularly Luke felt, uh, not Luke, Paul felt overwhelmed by the culture 
Uh, Corinth was full of these impressive, wealthy, uh, wise, well-spoken people, lots of status, and it seems as if Paul couldn't match it with them. Uh, he says, we read this in 1 Corinthians, he says, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom, which was the kind of thing that people in Corinth wanted. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Now, we don't know whether the Lord's message in Acts 18, his message of encouragement to Paul, was exactly lined up with that experience of Paul saying he came to, came to him in Corinth with weakness and fear and great trembling, but it sounds pretty likely, doesn't it? Paul's finding this difficult. It's an overwhelming city, but the Lord speaks to him and says, uh, don't give up. He gives him a vision, and uh, visions come in the book of Acts at really crucial times. Uh, if you think through the different visions that happen, and so although this is only a couple of verses, I think it's actually a really important moment when Paul is discovered, is discouraged and perhaps ready to move on. Perhaps he feels like, well, the Jews haven't listened. Perhaps it's time to move to another city. The Lord says, stay. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. And the reasons are not, he's not just saying, well, toughen up, but, you know, don't worry. He gives Paul two reasons. One is, I am with you. I'm going to protect you. Uh, it sounds like Jesus' words in the Great Commission, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, the Lord doesn't always promise us that no one will attack us. In fact, Paul got attacked by people in other cities, but Paul's told in this case, I will protect you. No one will attack you. But the Lord does always promise that he'll be with us, whatever happens. And the further reason Paul's given is, I have many people in this city. The Lord already knows. He's already chosen his children. And again, that's not always the case for us. At least the Lord doesn't tell us, I have many people here. But this does show us how God's sovereignty should be an encouragement to us in evangelism, in outreach. Even when things are tough, the Lord has people who he's chosen. And, and he'll bring them. It's not up to us. It's not us to, up to us to have brilliant arguments or great presentations. The Lord can use our trembling, uncertain words. That's what Paul says. I, was, I didn't have great eloquence. I was with you in fear and trembling. But the Lord used him. So if your workplace or your family or your group of friends or your scripture class seems like a tough place, they seem unresponsive to the gospel, this is an encouragement to keep going. Keep praying, keep talking about Jesus because the Lord is with you and he knows who are his. So Paul stays for 18 months. Keeps working in the house of, or using the house of Titius Justus and seeing the Lord build the church. But there's still our Jewish opposition and a new 
proconsul, a new district governor is appointed, Gallio. And this Gallio is a significant figure. We actually have an inscription in the city of Delphi, which is up to the, a bit further north in Greece, from the Emperor Claudius writing to the city in which he says, uh, this is my, or the, speaks about his friend, the proconsul Unius Gallio, the person who appears here. So Gallio is, is, is uh, highly connected. He's actually a friend of the emperor. And he's, as I said, and he's obviously he's a proconsul of the number three city in the empire. So the Jews bring charges against Paul uh, that he's turning people to worship against the law. Now, does, do they mean worship against the Jewish law or do they mean somehow he's broken the Roman law? I think they must, they're hoping that they can make the case on the second grounds. Uh, Judaism was given special protection by the Roman Emperor, uh, Empire. It was recognised as being a valid religion and, and so was given protection. And I think they're saying, well, Paul's message doesn't fit with us. He's disturbing people. You need to do something about him. So they bring him to the court. Actually, you know, this would have been the site where the Corinthian court was. And there's this lovely detail that Paul doesn't even get to make his defence. Luke says, just as Paul was about to speak, you know, he's just about to explain things, Gallio said to them, case dismissed. This is an in-house debate between you Jewish people. I don't need to have anything to do with it. This is an internal matter. And that's a really important legal ruling because what he's saying is, uh, I, I'm going to view Christianity as part of the uh, religio licita, an accepted religion, it's part of Judaism, and that's the way that I'm going to view it. And this is a judgment that's being made by uh, a friend of the emperor, proconsul of the third most significant province in the Roman Empire. And so I, I think that is one of the reasons why from here on in the book of Acts, the authorities of, of the Roman authorities are actually pretty protective and supportive of the, of, uh, the Christians. We often hear about early Christian persecution by the Romans, and there was some, but over the next few hundred years, uh, Christians benefited a great deal also from the protection of Rome. And of course, you know, 300 years later, the emperor became a Christian. But of course, protection from Gallio is not all that great, or perhaps at least it's not all that reliable, because after the decision that Paul made, that, that Gallio makes, uh, the group who are with, uh, who are there at the at the courthouse, attack Sosthenes, who's the new um, synagogue ruler. Now, maybe this is the Jewish group attacking him because he hasn't managed to prosecute the case. Perhaps it's the Gentile crowd. We don't. It's not quite clear. But in any case, Gallio is just not at all concerned with what's happened. So while Paul benefits from. Roman protection, and that's good at present. It also shows, you know, Roman protection is not terribly reliable. It's pretty inconsistent. So Paul stays in Corinth. Uh, after that, verse 18 says he stayed in Corinth for some time. I think that adds on to the 18 months. So it's probably two years or so that he stays in Corinth. Then he leaves and he moves on to Ephesus, so across 
the Aegean Sea to Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla who stay with him in Ephesus. So we didn't read that, and I want to pick up and read a little bit more of Acts 18 now, picking up from verse 24. So Paul and Aquila and Priscilla move to Ephesus, and then Paul moves on, but Aquila and Priscilla stay in Ephesus. In verse 24, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So here's this Jewish man, come, he arrives from Alexandria. This is the city, the third city in the, the second city in the empire, famous for its library and its learning. There was a very well-educated Greek-speaking Jewish community there. The famous Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria would have been an older contemporary of Apollos. And we're told Apollos is a learned man. That, That word learned means he's a trained speaker, he's eloquent. And he knows the scriptures well. And Alexandria is exactly the right place to get that combination. Someone who'd had an excellent kind of classical education and had been in the Jewish community and had learnt the scriptures well. And he's a Christian, or he's at least very close to being a Christian. He teaches about Jesus accurately, but he hasn't had Christian baptism and he doesn't know the gift of the Spirit. He only knows the promise from John. He's enthusiastic and he's bold, but he needs some help. And so this couple... Priscilla and Aquila, who've spent two years with Paul in in Corinth and have now moved to Ephesus, are there and they take Apollos into their home, that might mean to their house church, the church that meets in their home, and they give him fuller theological training. This is a fascinating little glimpse into the early church, this gifted, educated Alexandrian Jew being tutored by the businesswoman, Priscilla, and the businessman, Aquila, who have come from Rome and have worked with Paul. It's interesting, Priscilla is named first in that couple. She's obviously part, very much part of the teaching team. I would have loved to have heard the conversations that took place to help Apollos understand better. And what's more, and in some ways this is the point, Apollos then goes to Corinth. Uh, in chapter 18, it says he wants to go to Achaia, which is the region. But if you look at chapter 19, verse 1, it says, while Apollos was at Corinth. So he goes to Corinth, and he's just the right man for Corinth. Uh, he brings the kind of big city sophistication, the insight, the eloquence, the confidence. He would have fitted so well. And so that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 can say, I planted Apollos watered. 
but God gave the growth. They worked together. Paul started the church. He preached the gospel. Apollos came and built the church up and strengthened it. And this is God's purpose working together. God gave the growth. Now, some people in Corinth actually loved Apollos so much that part of their church became the kind of Apollos fan club and created divisions. And that's one of the reasons Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Uh, but when Apollos goes there first, he's very helpful. And I don't think the divisions were his fault. In fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians that he's been urging Apollos to go back to Corinth, but he hasn't wanted to. I mean, reading between the lines, you think because he knows his popularity has become a bit of a problem at the church. But Paul's been urging him to go back, and Paul says, and now he's willing to return. So God kept Paul in Corinth with partners around him to help him build the church, protected him, and then prepared Apollos to go back and to build the church. So at the start of Acts 18, there's no church in this really tough city. By the end, the Lord has built his church. And so it's wonderful that a few years later when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he can say, to the church of God in Corinth. They're a church with problems like every church, but Paul knows there is a living, active, gifted church there, and he thanks God for them. Similarly, the Kellers, when they went to work to New, went to New York, uh, they worked there for 35 years. They planted the Redeemer Church, and which is now five churches of about 5,000 people in total. But I think even more exciting, they've been part of supporting planting about 50 churches in the city of New York in all sorts of denominations. But that story is not a story of Tim Keller as the hero, but of what God was doing, of having the right people at the right place uh, with lots of other right people so that under the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, New York City is actually a different kind of place to what it was 30 years ago. Like Corinth, things have changed. So two reflections from all of that. The first is to recognise that God builds his church and God's got bigger plans than our plans and he's working things and so it's great to be able to rest confidently in that. Uh, Paul didn't know how things were going to play out in Corinth, but the Lord did, and he had it under his provision. And sometimes we do get the privilege, as we do as we read through Acts 18, of seeing the Lord bring things together, of weave, together, weave people together with their gifts and the circumstances and see the way the Lord is with his church, providing for it and building it. And the second thing to notice is it's a team game. This is not about Paul as the great solo hero. In fact, Acts 18 is perhaps the chapter that makes that the clearest in the book of Acts. Paul is struggling, but God provides Priscilla and Aquila and Silas and Timothy and Titius Eustace and Crispus and Apollos. And in fact, if you go to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a whole lot of other people in Corinth that Paul greets as people that he's worked with. And if you look at the book of Romans, which is written from Corinth, there's even more people who are in Corinth that Paul writes from who are his fellow workers with different gifts and varying roles. 
all part of how God gave the growth. And so each of us has a part to play. It might seem small, but the Lord weaves them together and uses them for his church. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you, you're at work, that the mission of the gospel is your mission, uh, that you use all sorts of different people and that even in the hardest places, uh, you bring people to yourself. And so we pray that you'll help us to trust you. We pray for our own church, that you'll help us to uh, rejoice in the people that you bring together, help us to work together in that team. And Father, we think of other churches in our own area, around Australia and indeed around the world. We pray for the same uh, blessing. Please encourage your people everywhere and continue to build your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.